Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shiokan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Brian Bellow. Over the past few weeks, we've been featuring short midweek podcasts explaining the history behind big headlines. So we have some breaking news going on right now on the Standing Rock protest over the pipeline. The Army Corps of Engineers halted construction of the Dakota Access Pipelines. The Army Corps of Engineers will consider different routes, saying it would be best accomplished through an environmental impact statement. The past few months of protest over the Dakota Access Pipeline have thrust history into the headlines. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe argues that the pipeline is in violation of a treaty that goes all the way back to 1851. But there also have been many subsequent treaties and court cases on the matter. This got us thinking. Which treaties, laws, and which precedent should we be examining when wading through claims about the land? Luckily, we have someone here who can help us. Robert Anderson is the director of the Native American Law Center at the University of Washington. He's also a member of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Why don't we start with the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie? That's a treaty that's most frequently mentioned in relation to the Dakota Access Pipeline. What I want to know from you is, what's the basic story surrounding that treaty, that 1851 treaty? Okay, Brian. Well, you can't really start with 1851. You have to step back a little bit and look at the status of Native American tribes and indigenous peoples generally prior to colonization of uh, what's now the United States. And at that time, of course, the, the, the Sioux Nation and other indigenous peoples had the right to use and occupy their lands and, and occupy them and govern themselves as, as they saw fit. And with the coming of the Europeans and eventually the United States, um, international law principles that were adopted by the United States government uh, held that the uh, indigenous populations were subject to the laws of either European nations as colonists or the United States government when it took over from Great Britain. And under that regime, the United States uh, determined that, well, Congress is going to be the body that deals with Indian affairs, and lands may not be acquired from Indian nations without the permission of Congress, either through statutes or through treaties. And so as the United States advanced uh, westward from the eastern seaboard, uh, they encountered uh, various peoples, eventually uh, the Sioux in uh, North and South Dakota. And what precipitated the treaty itself, Bob? Well, as the United States advanced to the West with its military, there were conflicts that were starting to ensue with the indigenous peoples. And so the United States, you know, had a choice, either try to take over this land through full-fledged war or try to negotiate some sort of a deal uh, with the indigenous peoples. And as was the pattern uh, throughout the United States, the initial treaties were treaties of peace. So the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie uh, guaranteed to the tribal nations a broad area, including most of South Dakota, parts of North Dakota, Nebraska, and Wyoming. And those areas were to be guaranteed for permanent use and occupancy. And as the U.S. 
population moved into the area, they started to discover gold and silver and timber and other things that they wanted, farmlands, uh, and uh, the uh, population clamored for uh, greater access to the reservation that had been guaranteed to the uh, Sioux Nation. And so, as, as was typical throughout the West, the United States eventually acceded to those demands from the white population uh, and sought to negotiate a, a new treaty. And so, in 1868... And, and did they say, well, let's just amend this old treaty, or did they create a whole cloth set of treaties? Well, they, what they, they did was they, they created a, a new treaty that uh, preserved parts of the earlier treaty, but amended it in many ways. So it's a separate legal document. Separate document, okay. Yeah, in the 1868 treaty. Uh, and that treaty, again, provided uh, uh, ownership and, and guarantees of uh, uh, pretty large areas of the uh, Dakotas uh, that the tribes uh, wanted to retain, including the Black Hills, and ultimately, the United States wanted land uh, for its growing population as part of the uh, uh, policy of manifest destiny. And so, uh, you know, they, they were making promises uh, that they sort of knew that they were going to break eventually. And this particular case is, uh, is one in point. Uh, President Grant, uh, in 1876, sent out secret instructions to the Army to stop protecting the tribes and their reservation from non-Indian trespassers. <laughs> oh, yeah, Custer was out there charged with protecting the reservation, and he's writing letters to the Denver Post saying, oh, you should see all the gold and silver out here, but, you know, I'm in, I have to protect the Indians from non-Indian encroachment. But, boy, if this reservation were reduced, there would be an incredible uh, wealth that the non-Indians could uh, assume. And these Indians, they don't care about the gold or the silver. They're just living out here hunting, so why not take it away from them? And they simply stopped uh, uh, you know, preventing trespassers, white trespassers, from coming onto the reservation to... Uh, uh, prospect for gold and silver and other natural resources. And so the tribes in the U.S. You know, began the, the full-fledged uh, Sioux Nation wars that took place in the 1860s and 1870s. Did the tribes try any recourse through the legal system, or is it laughable to even ask that question? Well, you know, tribes had some access to lawyers at the time, but it, it was pretty laughable in this context here where you've got the United States government uh, basically assisting the settlers in trespassing on the reservation uh, and then eventually engaging in, in full-fledged warfare with them. And so the legal instrument, the legal channel, was the uh, new agreement that the United States brought out uh, after the war uh, in uh, 1876 and 77. Uh, and uh, by, that in, by that agreement that was ratified by Congress, the United States basically took the Black Hills and much of the other territory that the tribes had occupied uh, into U.S. ownership. Uh, and that was the an action that led to a, a U.S. Supreme Court case that wasn't decided till 1980. Well, tell me about that case. Well, in that case, the tribe claimed that the United States had taken its property uh, without uh, consent of the tribal nation and without the payment of compensation. And so the United States government resisted that, said, well, we gave them rations uh, and uh, a smaller reservation on which to live, and that was sufficient compensation for the taking of the rest of their lands, including the Black Hills. And the U.S. Supreme Court looked at that case and said, look, you know, the United States has the power to take tribal lands, just like they can take anybody else's land for a public use, 
But if the United States is going to take that tribal land, they must pay compensation, just like they must pay compensation to anyone else. And so the Supreme Court uh, ruled that the United States had to pay compensation for the Black Hills uh, and uh, issued a large uh, judgment against the United States uh, that, interestingly, the tribe uh, has refused to accept. And so it sits in the U.S. Treasury uh, gathering interest to the tune of about a billion dollars uh, because the tribes you know, want their land back. So the tribe said, this isn't sufficient compensation. We actually want our land. Right. We don't want money. We want land. And how is that related to the conflict over the Dakota Access Pipeline? Well, I think it's, it's really interesting to see how this has roiled up in this context of this pipeline, you know, crossing a, a relatively small uh, part of the uh, uh, tribe's former land base. But it really served as a flashpoint because it just revealed all of the injustice that the tribes have endured uh, through this process of colonization, through the taking of tribal lands without full, free, and informed consent on the part of the tribes. Uh, and the in- injustice of it all led the tribes to, I think, seek whatever relief they could get uh, based on uh, laws that govern the issuance of uh, pipelines uh, and rights of way across federal lands uh, and use that uh, to bring to light the fact that this uh, pipeline had been proposed to be up near Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, and uh, the the largely non-Native citizenry up there didn't want it because of concerns about oil spills and and other things. And so they moved it down next to the reservation. And that was, I think, just too much for the tribes. And they they very successfully, you know, brought to bear all of this injustice and brought it into the public eye uh, and created the tremendous uh, protest that they've had out there. Bob, a lot of people look at this conflict and say, well, you know, this is just another NIMBY, just another not and by backyard. And you yourself talked about how the pipeline was originally planned for another part of North Dakota, and it got shunted uh, towards this Indian reservation. What makes the claims uh, of these indigenous people uh, distinctive? What makes their claims stand out from any citizens who might not want a pipeline running through their land? Well, the biggest difference is is we're talking here about a sovereign nation within the United States government that has a a government-to-government relationship with the federal government based on treaties and agreements and promises that were made uh, in exchange uh, for fair treatment by the United States, the tribes surrendered a tremendous amount of land whereby the non-Indian population of the Dakotas was able to move in there and develop their economies, usually on, on some of the best land in the uh, states. And so the tribes as, as nations feel that you know, they have a, a higher standing, as they do, because they're one of the three sovereigns mentioned in the Constitution, along with the states and the federal government, uh, and that when projects like these are going to be built that might affect them, you know, they should be heavily involved from day one and not just get some uh, back-of-the-hand uh, analysis and uh, consultation uh, when things get to the point where they're about to be signed off on. 
Uh, and so in, in that sense, it's, it's different than John Q. Public complaining about a uh, telegraph, well, I guess I'm dating myself, a, a fiber optic cable going too close to his backyard. <laughs> might want only to redo on, that. Only on Backstory do we have people refer to the telegraph as a live issue, Bob. I love that. Well, let me ask you, do you think there's a deep irony in the fact that so many people tend to look at these treaties and say, oh, you know, that's happened a long time ago. That doesn't have any relevance today. Isn't that literally a repetition of the way these treaties have consistently been treated throughout American history? Aren't we simply replicating history by blowing off these treaties? That's exactly right. And even though some of the the non-Indian population may think these treaty history and individual treaties are insignificant, uh, tribal communities and Indian people remember their own history. They tell the stories, pass them on from generation to generation. And these historical events and wrongs that have been done long ago are, are not forgotten. You know, the, the government is doing the right thing with respect to this particular pipeline, but the only reason they're doing it is because of the tremendous public support for the Standing Rock Sioux. If there hadn't been all these people going out there and all the press coverage of this egregious you know, treatment of the protesters by the police, we would have never gotten up to the level of the White House, where I'm certain this has gotten. Uh, otherwise, it would have been approved at the regional level and you know, life would have gone on. But the fact that Standing Rock you know, stood so firm and garnered all of this outside support and press is truly remarkable. Bob, thanks for joining us on Backstory today. Thank you, Brian. It's been my pleasure. Robert Anderson is a member of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe and the director of the Native American Law Center at the University of Washington. And podcast listeners, you can look forward to a full episode of Backstory on Friday. 